Welcome to Corporate Cornucopia, the podcast that's overflowing with business insights, entrepreneurial tips, and stories from the front lines of today's economic landscape. From the studios of the Kyrville Chamber of Commerce, I'm Mark Heiberger, your host. And I'm Noel Fenderson, your co-host. One in three Americans now lives in a state with Marcy's Law for all in their state constitution. Thanks to one local advocate, Marcy's Law is bringing a voice to the voiceless in Tennessee. Today on the show, we are talking to Marianne Donovan, the Tennessee Victim Outreach Director for Marcy's Law. Her journey with Marcy's Law began shortly after the tragic murder of her fiance, Chris. Now, over 13 years later, she has dedicated her life to public service and victim advocacy. Well, Marianne, thank you so much for being on our uh, podcast this morning, and thank you for coming all the way out to the Collierville Chamber of Commerce this morning to be with us in person. We so much appreciate it, and uh, we, we so much just appreciate you for what all you you know you do in the community and what all you've you've done in your your past career with legislation and helping uh, with uh, various political campaigns. But <clears throat> we're here today to talk about uh, victims' rights and Marcy's Law, which is something you're very passionate about. And I love the thing that you say, that you took something that was painful in your life and turned it into your passion. And can you t- tell us a little about that? I can. Um, I, my give your pain and purpose. That's what it is. I'm sorry. That's, yes, that's that, exactly. It's always <clears throat> been my my thing. I can tell you, and I'll start back from the beginning, when I was working at the legislature, I lived in Nashville, and um, I had had always grown up as a child with a mother who I loved dearly. She was very precious, but she always put um, all of her hopes and dreams into a man, and I was she was married four times and divorced four times, and we moved around a lot. So I went to 13 schools in 12 years, and we just had a lot of people in and out of our lives, and no one no one ever stayed. I dealt with a lot of abandonment issues, and um, so I had a hard time trusting men. And even in my own relationships, I had a lot of men come in and out of my life until finally one day I met a man that um, he was good to me. He was kind to me, and I remember having— these moments where I didn't know what to do with good and kind. So I just kind of kept pushing him, pushing him away because I expected him to go anyways. And I thought, you know, at some points I'm going to leave you before you leave me. And he always pulled me back in. And I can remember him saying, we don't put up walls to keep people out. We put up walls to see who cares enough to knock them down. And he said, Marianne, when are you going to learn that I'm not going anywhere? And that was just a moment that stuck with me. And, um, in that moment, I chose to trust him and believe him. And and that was a happy moment for me because in that moment, we chose to um, begin building a life together. And he promised me he would never leave me. And so um, we had a home together. We were engaged to be married. And we were going to build a life together. And he went to work one night. And um, I remember... Um, he's typically home about 11. I went to bed and um, he called me about nine one night and said, hey, I, he, I, he was going to tell me something, but I was on the phone and 
I said, hey, you're going to be home about, you know, soon. Can you just tell me when you get home? And I fell asleep and about 1020, I sat up in the bed. It was this just this oddest feeling because he had not communicated with me via text or anything. And um, just in a panic, I called him. He didn't answer. Um, I texted, no response. So I got in my car and drove to his work. Um, I just felt like something was off. And when I got there, I drove up to a crime scene and um, there were I, I tried to run in and they wouldn't let me. And, and that was when I was told that there was a robbery and that he had been um, shot and killed. And that was, you know, a moment that I stood there at 35 years old. This man that promised me he would never leave me, um, he left. And someone came into our world and forced him to break that promise. And I was left feeling abandoned all over again. And um, and so it took me a while to to heal from that. I, you know, I was told to to go home. I mean, there was nothing I could do. I couldn't go in. I couldn't be with him. All I wanted to do was go in and hold his hand and hug him and be with him, dead or alive. I just wanted to be with him. And the only instructions I was given that night was to go home. And um, I did. I laid in bed for many, many days. And at some point, I had to get up and figure out how I was going to live. And the only sense I could make out of it was figuring out how to give my pain a purpose. And that's what I did. And that eventually, can you tell us a little bit about the path of how that led you to Marcy's Law? I can. So I worked at the legislature at the time, and I realize now with all of my experiences that so many victims have no um, idea of what path to take. Um, and so oftentimes you just live in your pain and you live in your anger. Grief is such a process and you have to live through each one of those stages. And if um, if you don't go through those processes, sometimes you get stuck in one or another. And that can be um, grief can be sadness. You can live in sadness, which gets you stuck in depression. Um, you can live in an angry stage, which makes you mad at the world. Um, and so I, you know, you have to move through each of them, and and I and I did, but I was fortunate to be in a place where I had access to information, and information was how to create change. And um, I worked with the legislature and all the departments. I was able to go to the Department of Corrections and say, I want to go to the prison, and I want to speak to. The inmates. I want to speak to someone, not just the inmates, but I want to. I wanted to talk to someone who had murdered somebody, and I had the ability to pick up the phone and call the commissioner and ask permission for that. And um, again, not every victim has the ability to do that. And and they said to me, "You will not get to talk to the per- to the person who killed Chris." And I said, "I, I know," and I wasn't ready for that, but. Um, they did grant me access to the prison where I could go in and talk to someone else. And and I did. I, I talked to a man and um, actually created a short 10-minute video um, called Choices and Consequences where I was able to film that and speak to a man who committed murder when he was 18 years old. And um, I was able to really 
try to understand how someone could um, do something like that, and then from the other side, how they could um, how they could do it, and then how what it felt like to live in prison, and hopefully change while you're on the inside. And then it just became my goal in that moment to want to. Um, speak to the inmates. There are classes on the inside. And for me, that was where I found my healing. I always say I found my healing in prison. There, that was where I figured out and that I had the ability to create change from within inside the prison. And so many victims were angry at me for that. How can you go in there and how can you talk to people who are doing that? And I said, it's kind of like you preaching to the choir. I can talk to victims all day long, but who am I really helping? Um, if I go into the prisons and I talk to the to the inmates, so many of them are coming back out. If they come back out and I can say some to, something to them that's going to prevent them from hurting someone else, that's <laughs> where I believe I'm really helping victims because I'm going to prevent someone else from victimizing another person. And so that's where I kind of coined that phrase, give your pain a purpose. And Mm -hmm. I quickly learned that my purpose was to hopefully prevent other victims. And I knew that was a big, um, a big task. But if I could prevent one or two or three victims, um, then I was at least doing something. When you went in to talk to this individual. Mm -hmm. Was that that had to be a mixed, mixed emotional moment, I would assume, from all kind of emotions. And what what was that? Did you prepare and think about what you wanted that? How did you get into this conversation with this person? I didn't. And I was warned that this was only six months after Chris died. And um, a nonprofit group that was helping me to have access warned me that, you know, it's only been six months. I don't know that you're ready. Um, Sometimes it takes longer for people. And I was bound and determined because I I felt like if I just if I didn't get up and do something, I was going to go crazy. I was going to get stuck in one of those stages um, of sadness and anger. And, And in order for me to move past it, I had to do something. So I was eager to get in and I went I walked through those doors strong as ever. And once I got in, I'm going to tell you something. I quickly resorted back to this really scared, emotional being that I, and I didn't prepare for that. Um, so, so no, I, I wasn't as prepared as I thought I was. And so when I got in, in front of him, it, then I realized that I was speaking to someone who had, who had murdered someone else's family member. Um, and so it started off a little bit rocky. Um, I was a little bit flustered. I think the more the conversation went on, I I was fortunate that I had someone that was remorseful um, because it could have gone either way, Mm -hmm. which is why they weren't going to let me talk to Chris's murderer because they said, you never know what you're going to get. They could easily say something to hurt me more. They could easily say something that um, was going to, be untrue that would be you know just 
intentionally embellished embellished to hurt me. And so, but I felt that this man was being honest with me and remorseful to the point that he even apologized to the pain that he caused the family. He apologized to the pain that I had felt. Um, he acknowledged all of that he had had lost. Um, and so I, I, I felt like I, there was a lot of healing in that moment. And, and then in the victim impact classes that I started to teach, I can remember having to stand in. The, I was standing at one point in a room with probably 50, 75, 100 people at one point. And I could quickly identify the men who really didn't care what I had to say, as opposed to the ones who did. Um, and I can remember having to ask for a chair so I could sit down because it was either pass out or sit down because mm -hmm. sometimes I would be so nervous. But then again, the more I would talk, I would always share with them my background because I think they judge you when you walk in based on what I look like. She doesn't understand us. She doesn't understand where we come from. So I would always sit down and say, I want to share with you a little bit about my background and not that it's not so you'll feel sorry for me because I want you to understand that you probably relate with me more than you realize. And so I talked a lot about um, how I was raised, how my father was um, an alcoholic and I didn't see him for 20 years, how my mother um, was married and divorced four times. We, um, I grew up in a, mostly trailer parks. And so we were, um, I didn't go to college because I was told we couldn't afford it. And so th there was a lot, my, you know, my, there were a lot of addictions in my family. And so there were a lot of abuse. Um, there's a lot of sexual abuse and mental abuse and physical abuse. And so I wanted them to know I've probably lived a lot of what you've lived through. And once they heard me say that, I could see their walls come down and a conversation begin. Um, a lot of hands would go up with questions or even comments. And so that was my therapy. And sometimes their therapy, they would cry and I would cry. And sometimes it was actually, sometimes I didn't even want to leave because I found like instead of sitting and talking about me for an, an hour, um, we had dialogue and they needed it. And so did, quite frankly, so did I. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Well, so, so tell us like what exactly is Marcy's Law? So for everybody listening out there, walk us through what that is and what that means. Yeah, so um, so later as I go through life and leave the legislature, I was presented with this option to work with um, this company or this nonprofit called Marcy's Law. Um, I was approached because they thought I would be a great advocate. And as I looked into it, because I had never heard of it either, I realized that I was um, really the perfect person to advocate for Marcy's Law and Marcy was a girl in California who was um, had a boyfriend, and she was ultimately stalked and murdered by her boyfriend. And as her family went through the court process, um, he was a, the boyfriend was arrested and placed in jail, and 
the mother and the brother of Marcy were in the grocery store one day, and as they they had just come from the gravesite, and as they were walking out of the grocery store, they came face to face with their um, with Marcy's murderer, mm. and they had not been um, informed that he had been released from jail on bond, and that of course you can only imagine that sends you into a tell i mean there's there's a lot of things wrong with that one it's just it's just it's traumatizing all over again you think that your daughter or your sister's murder is in jail only to come face to face with him but then it's also a safety you know there's a lot of safety you get this as in law enforcement previous law enforcement um he if he knows he and he's only out probably for a short period of time he could easily get out and go after her family. And so they need to be informed if he's going to be released. And so um, as her brother got older and had the uh, um, financial ability to do so, he created this nonprofit and just said, I want to make sure he gave his pain a purpose. And he wanted to make sure that he did everything in his power um, to make sure that victims had constitutional rights to make sure that they had rights to um, to be informed and to be notified and to be a part of the process. And that's what the family did. And so um, that started in California, and they've now gone through 13 states, and I think they're trying right now in four others. And so the goal, I think we're, um, so we're touching 17 states, I believe, at this point. Wow. So, okay, so you're, you're coming out of what happened with your husband. You're on the other side in the jail. And then you is this when you come to the realization of Marcy's Law? So so this is when so I, you know, before Chris, I'll, I'll tell you, I, I I really never paid attention to victims' rights. I'm like I'm sad to say, I hate that I waited until something happened to me to understand the importance. But you just live life and you don't think about it. And so I tell people um, who who don't fight as hard as I do for victims' rights, be glad that you're not aware of this. Mm. But I also say to those people who who aren't as involved or those legislators who have a vote um, and sometimes who vote against things like this, stop for just a second and just imagine your spouse or your parent, or your child, what if someone was to put a gun to the back of their head and pull the trigger? Would you want a voice in court? Mm. Like, if you, I I hate for you to even try to imagine that, Mm. but if it's the only way we can get you for a moment to realize the importance of this, if someone kills your child, does that change how you feel about victims' rights? And I promise you it would. Yeah. And that's how I feel. I didn't know the importance of it until it happened to me. And so why did I choose to um, leave a career that I had in order to advocate for victims' rights? Because I sadly know how important it is. And um, in 1998, Tennessee did the right thing by passing a victim's bill of rights in our Constitution. So do we have a constitutional right in Tennessee? We absolutely do. However, there is not an enforcement piece 
written in our Bill of Rights in Tennessee. So what that means is a law without enforcement is merely a suggestion. That's important for us to know. It looks really pretty on paper when you read it. You're like, oh, this is great. We have all this. Why do we need more? Because there's no enforcement piece. And then the other part of it is it doesn't cover all victims. It's only criminal court. It does not cover juvenile court. It does not cover um, General Sessions Court. Well, guess where the majority of domestic violence cases go through? General Sessions Courts. So if you have a domestic violence case, that abuser is going to start in general, run through General Sessions Court. And so if he's released, that abuser is really, that victim may not even be notified. Or let's just say there's a juvenile that victimizes you. If it's in juvenile court, that current Bill of Rights doesn't even apply to you. So therefore, that victim has no rights. And that is what we want to do, is we want to include all victims. We feel like it's not fair to say some victims have rights. We want to make sure all victims have rights and all victims have enforcement. <clears throat> Could you, for, for again, like, like Noel said, people that are going to listen to this podcast, could you tell us what, what when, you, when you say victims' rights, what, what would that look like today? In other words, could you walk us through a little a scenario of if someone lo- lost their loved one, tragically lost them in a crime, and, and what would the closest relative, what right would they have or not have? What, what, what would you like, you know, what do they have now versus what else could there be that would be more beneficial to someone? So, so I'll kind of set this Let's, I'm going to try to use something that everyone's familiar with. Let's talk about the Jeffrey Epstein case, for example, because everyone's familiar with that. Um, so you have all of these victims. So let's just set the stage for a second. If you visualize a courtroom, you have the prosecutor on one side sitting at a desk. On the other side, you have the defense attorney or the public defender with their client. Then you have this wall, and behind the wall, you have all the spectators. Well, guess where the victims have to sit? With the spectators. And so the the offender has a seat at the table with their lawyer. The victim has to sit with the spectators. So there's your first So when we talk about equal rights, we don't want to change the rights for the offender. We believe those rights are set in in the Constitution and they're important. We want equal rights. Well, we've already got this imbalance because victims don't even have a seat at the table. And so at any point along the way, the offender has the right to choose if they want to speak or not. Those victims don't have that right to stand up and have the right to speak. The prosecutors control that environment along the way. And so the prosecutor is 
it works for the state, not the victim. And so, again, mm. victims can have their own lawyer, but they don't get to control when their voice is heard. Um, and so what that looks like is victims do not have a voice in court. And so one of the things that Marcy's Law would do was it, it would give, if at any point a victim doesn't feel like their voice is being presented adequately, it would give them the right to petition the court and say, we would like to be heard. And then the judge could grant it or deny it. And so the, so it's Marcy's law is is a um, is 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 a voice, not a veto. So I want to make that clear. But then it's also um, notification. It gives them the right to be notified at every single point in the case. Um, there was just like with the Jeffrey Epstein case, they came to an agreement with a plea deal and victims were not even notified in that. And so if there is a plea deal that's made, victims should have the right to be notified and be present when that plea deal is made. And in that case, there was a plea deal that was made. Victims were not notified. Prosecutor comes and presents it. The other side accepts it, presents it to the judge because they're all in agreement. They move on. Victims didn't even know that it happened. And so we just want to make sure, again, victims may not agree with it, but what, what could happen differently in that case? Prosecutors present it. They accept it. We just would at least like for the victims to be present when it happens because the judge could at least say, victims, how do you feel about this? And um, they may be able to contribute something to the conversation that would make the judge feel differently about accepting that plea deal or not. And if they're not in the room to be able to say, I would like to speak on that, then, I mean, that just, there's, again, that's where there's that imbalance. So giving that victim standing in court <laughs> matters. So notification is, is important every step of the way, and then giving them standing in court so their voice matters, which we don't have, because right now if a prosecutor chooses to ignore a victim, they can. And because there's no enforcement in the Bill of Rights, nothing happens if they do. Now, we like to say and think that we have great prosecutors, and sometimes there's just error, and I get that. But if they choose to blow off a victim, they can, and there's no consequence for that. Um, I do want to add that Marcy's Law is an opt-in, is an opt-in, um, has an opt-in clause, so what that means is 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 it just it's not applicable to just everybody in every crime. You have to literally opt into it so that as a victim. As a victim. And so if you enter the system as a victim, um, they don't have to just automatically give you all of these rights unless you come to them and say, Hey, I want to be included in the process. And so there's a little bit of um, responsibility. responsibility on the victim side to make sure that they go to you and say, I want to be notified. Here's my email or here's my phone number or here's how 
You can have a form. Here's my name. Do you want to be notified? Check yes or no. If the answer is no, because it's a simple crime or quite honestly, some rape victims, they're so traumatized. They don't they just want to be left alone. Mm. If they check no, because I don't want to keep coming to court and seeing his face, then if they check no, you're done. You don't even have to notify them in any way, shape, or form. But if I check yes and I put an email address, all you have to do is send me an email. If I've given you the wrong email address, then that's on me. You're only legally bound to the email address that I've written on that paper. If I give you a phone number and you try to call it and it's wrong, that's on the victim. You're only, you know, you've got proof that you notified me based on the information I provided. And so so that eliminates the fact that when when you're told, when it's been said that it's going to cost $16 million extra because we have this many cases that we now have to notify. Well, that's not necessarily true because you don't necessarily know, not every single victim's going to opt in. And then for all of those who opt in, not every single victim is going to incite their Marcy's Law rights if you mess up. Because if you come to me and say, oh my gosh, we had court and I didn't call you. I'm so sorry. If you've treated a victim with respect along the way and you mess up, most oftentimes they're going to say, it's it's fine. I get it. And so it's really only for those the, the times when you've treated them poorly that they say, Judge, mm-hmm. I want to incite my Marcy's Law rights. And the opposition to that, you, you mentioned the cost involved is that i mean why what is the opposition so so you know we talk about resources Mm -hmm. i do want to mention that um resources are always an issue they're they're an issue now and we get that and we recognize this i i would say a couple of things when it comes to notification we are moving into an era where you're starting to see that we have the means for electronic notification with vine court with savin and so it we really could just invest in our states with um at 2022 we're not picking up the phone and calling everybody anymore kentucky uses vine courts where we have a software a victim goes online opts in puts their phone number in they get notification so when the courts enter the information into the computer system they are electronically notified and so i think we're moving away from those having to pick up the phone every single time and call everybody. So I don't think it's going to be that costly. We need more people to cover that. It's an electronic means and a software that we can purchase. But then also, I would say to their prosecutors, we've been fighting for resources. Well, guess what? The reality is, is if this become Marcy's Law becomes a constitutional right, then the General Assembly has to fund it because it's a constitutional right. And and then the last thing I'll say is we give these rights to the offenders and we always find ways to fund it because it's a constitutional right. And we're giving them more and more every day. Victims deserve it. So why would we say, well, we can't afford that? Like We have to get back to the mentality that Victims didn't ask for this. They deserve it. I spoke to a county commission, and I had a 
county commissioner. She was a former DA. And when I was talking to her, she said, her exact words, Marianne, victims don't need equal rights because the offender's life is on the line. And I said, Madam, with all due respect, Chris's life was on the line, too, and he lost his, and it was by no choice of his own. But that was the mentality. She said that to me. The offender's life was on the line. We have to get back to remembering that victims' lives are on the line, too, and he lost his. So just because he's dead doesn't mean we shouldn't. Remember that his right shouldn't die with him. And we, if there's a cost associated to that right, he deserves for that right to be funded. Um, but I still believe that electronic notification is going to be the means for that. Yeah. And then I'm the person that says our state should figure out a way to fund it if there's a cost involved. I do. Yeah. They deserve it. Victims deserve it. They're they're doing it on the offender side, um, and victims deserve it more than anybody. So to to wrap up, what what can the general what can us the general public the general folks who live in the community do to be supportive or to to help with this? And then also, what can victims do? Yes. Yeah. You know? I cannot stress enough, um, our legislators have to hear from you. You all, we were in committee last year. It was subcommittee, and we did not make it out of subcommittee. We lost by one vote. So what does that mean is those legislators, if they don't know that you're paying attention, if they don't hear from you and they don't, if they don't get emails and calls from you, um, then, then they don't know it's important that their constituents want them to vote a certain way. And so, and not only that, like, it's important that we know that in criminal justice committee, that Marcy's law is going to come through that committee. We need to know who those legislators are, and then we need to be on the phone. We need to be sending them emails, and we need them to know that. We want victims to have this justice. We are a voice for the voiceless because for all of those people, those children who can't make these phone calls because they've been abused, these elderly people who have been abused even in nursing homes or whatever, they can't make those calls for themselves. The people who have been murdered can't make those calls. Domestic violence victims who are scared and can't make those calls or people who just don't may not be um, as educated or have understanding of the process. Like if you know how to and have the ability to be a voice for the voiceless and make those calls for them, because if they don't, I, I'm, I'm one person and I'm not enough. If they don't hear from us as a group, then they're not going to do it. And last year they proved that by voting it down. Mm. Yeah. It was a sad day for victims. Yeah. It was a sad day for Tennessee, and um, I, and I'm ashamed of our state. Well, your your passion yeah. for everything just comes through the show. And thank you. Give your pain a purpose. I feel like we need a book uh, a book <laughs> title. That's a great one that you could uh, you could really continue to. Step. We could have you back on yeah. on here and talk for hours about this. So. 
just thank you for who you are and for thank giving you. your pain a purpose and it's phenomenal and, and just for sharing with us what's yeah. going on in the world. Thank you for sharing well, and inspiring and educating and I just want to leave and say this one last thing. When people tell you we're already doing that, I promise you I am traveling this state and I am hearing from victims telling me different. I have story after story after story of victims who are being treated unfairly. I wouldn't be out there um, fighting against the grain and doing all that I'm doing if we were getting it right. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Well, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you all. Thank you so much. And that's a wrap. Thank you for tuning in to Corporate Cornucopia. This episode was brought to you by our sponsor, My Town Roofing. Replacing your roof shouldn't be a hassle. It should be a smooth process done in a timely manner and, most importantly, at a reasonable price. My Town Roofers has thousands of satisfied customers. Check them out at MyTownRoofing.com. If you've enjoyed today's podcast, head on over to www.collierbillchamber.com to access our notes, join the conversation, or leave a good review.